0: Thank you for joining us here at the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. In case we haven't met, I'm Jason Hitchings, and I'm the men's and sports director here at Rolling Hills. Today, we are continuing our series, Masterclass. Jesus invites each and every one of us into his journey, no matter who we are or what we've done. Even though we are sinners, he calls us to become servants and leaders like him. Now let's dive into chapter two of the Gospel of Mark. We're glad you're here. and Jeff has given that introduction. Actually, my daughter, Kelly, I'm known as Kelly Minter's father, because uh, she's spoken here a number of times. And she's a good communicator. And a few weeks back, I'm heading up our prime time, and Grace Simmons, Jeff's daughter, is speaking there. She did a great job. I came into Jeff, put my hand on his shoulder, and said, your daughter's better than you are. <laughs> and he said, looks like you and I have something in common don't mess with Jeff. Well, some of you might be watching, some of you might be kind of kicking the tires on Christianity and sort of figuring out what this thing is that we believe. And I'm trusting that today, for those of you that are really looking at this, examining it, whether you're here online, that today would be the day that this would make sense to you. We're going to look at the authority of wisdom today, and I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 2. And for many, many years as i preach, preached, those are my six favorite words, take your Bibles and turn to. And we're in this Master Class series, and I just want to make, uh, throw something out. When I came, they told me that you have to have your outline in by Wednesday so that they can put these bulletins together. I do my outline while I'm up here. I'm an ad-libber, I always have been, I got a few thoughts, but I just, so I'm going to try to follow this, but don't worry about it, just listen, that's all you got to do. We're in Mark chapter 2, we're going to read a few verses here, then we'll pray and dive in. Let's take a look at the first few verses. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing him a paralytic, carried by four men. Since they could not get him, Jesus, before the crowd, they made an opening in the roof that Jesus could have the man lowered in. They dug a hole in the roof. And I often say, put yourself in the picture, step into the story. They lowered the mat, the paralyzed man lying on it. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that. He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to a paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Father, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. It's very hard to take an entire chapter and sort of distill it. I'm sure each campus, they have approaching this perhaps a little bit differently. There are about five different narratives here. And we're going to look at maybe just a couple briefly. But what I want to examine is the authority and the wisdom with which Jesus spoke. And the question that we have before us, Can we speak with that same authority? And I'm here to say that yes, we can, certainly to a degree. This is important, certainly to a degree. The big picture here is that there's a man who's a paralytic, and they can't get him in because things were so crowded, and they finally have to cut a hole in the roof and lower him in. And Jesus saw their faith, and he's included in their faith. And he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, I want to talk a little bit about this subject of authority. There are different types of authority. There's the authority of a coach that can bench you. There's the authority of a policeman that can arrest you. My dad was a three-star admiral. He was a vice-admiral, and he held a lot of authority in the Navy. And he was superintendent of the Naval Academy. He was also the skipper of the aircraft carrier Intrepid. And some of you may have visited it in New York. I was on it in 1961. We went out and I, the navigator made a mistake. And I'll never forget. My dad lit into him. He apologized later, but he let him know. I'm in charge. You do what I say. That's a different, that's inherent authority within a position. But there's the authority of wisdom. That's a different type of authority. For example, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the people would gather and they would say, this man speaks with authority and not like the religious leaders. Or in John 4, the woman at the well, she goes into town and she says, come and see a man that told me all things I've ever done. Or what manner of man is this, that even the wind and the waves obey him?" There's lots of statements made like that about Jesus with his authority and his wisdom. People were not attracted to him just because he was healing people. It was his wisdom. It was his wisdom. And so we need to make sure that we understand what we mean by knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is the accumulation of information. And we have more knowledge than we know what to do with. It's just, we've got it stacked everywhere. We've got it in the overhead compartments. We've got it everywhere. But it doesn't do us any good if it's not married to wisdom. Knowledge made the cell phone. Wisdom tells you how to use it. Wisdom is the proper application of knowledge. And we have to have those two things clear in our minds. Because if you're watching online, you might consider yourself to be an agnostic, an atheist. I call this the ultimate contradiction. How is it that we continue to increase in knowledge, but our problems don't go down? Now, we're increasing in knowledge in medicine. Those things are great, learning how to fix a car better or whatever. We're talking about... The human heart, the soul, the problems of the world. There's a big difference. You can't just fix that, all right? So we want to make sure we have an understanding. The world, I believe, is addicted to knowledge and allergic to wisdom. If we can just get more knowledge, if we can just get this faster computer, if we can just do this, we'll fix this. And we're on this treadmill and we're going nowhere exceedingly fast. For a long time we've been observing this. Knowledge or wisdom doesn't guarantee you won't have any problems in life, it simply guarantees you won't be the cause, all right? And that's how we want to live our lives, When our lives, be a people of of wisdom. So the question here is, um, can we step into this story, this narrative, and See some things that Jesus does that we also are capable of doing. Look at verse 2. So many gathered that there was no room, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. I'm doing that right now. You can do that. You don't have to be a pastor. You can be anybody and preach the word, share the word, get the word out. So we can do that. It's right here. This is something that he is doing that we are able to do. Look at verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Can you say that to somebody? Can I say that to somebody? Sure. Absolutely. If that person trusts Christ, I have the right to say, your sins are forgiven. I have the right to say you've just passed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. I have the right to say that you are now born again. I have the right to say there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I have the right to say that the Holy Spirit now indwells you. I have the right to say that God has now illuminated your mind to understand the deep things of his word. I can do that. Jesus does that, and you and I can do that. Look at verse 8. I find this interesting. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. They were thinking this is blasphemy, only God can forgive sins, which is certainly true, which means Jesus is God. There's a lot here, and that's more theology you want to get into, all right? But he knows in his spirit what they were thinking. And then he says to them and he talks to them, I know what you're thinking. They hadn't said anything. He just knew what they were thinking. Well, that's that's omniscience. Can I know what you're thinking? Not if you're talking about where you're going to lunch afterwards. Or if you're online, I can't tell you where you live or what you're doing, but I can tell you what you're thinking. Why? Because I've got so much wisdom? No. The Bible has the wisdom. For example, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, Eternity is written in the hearts of men. So if you're an agnostic, an atheist, who you are, I already know that eternity is troubling you. I, I know you know you're eternal. I know this. I know from Romans chapter 1 that if you don't like that troubling, you will take that truth that you know to be true and you will suppress it. You will push it away because you want to be wise in your own eyes. It might offend, but it's still the truth. I also know that you have a conscience, because Romans 2 says your conscience either accuses or excuses you. I also know that the law, the moral code of God, is written in the hearts of all people. I also know, according to the Gospel of John, that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. I also know that according to Mark, chapter 7, that Jesus says it's not what goes into man that defiles him, it's what comes out of the man that defiles him. And then he gives this whole list of all the junk that is in our hearts. And when you read it, you want to think, oh, he's talking about Putin or Hitler. For all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. So you see, we have vast amount of wisdom We weren't born with it, it's in here, it's in this book. It's what this book says. And these are why Jesus is able to say the things that he says and then puts them in this particular narrative, in this particular story line. So over and over again we see that there is an authority in wisdom. When wisdom comes to the table, it's in charge. I've been in too many meetings, I've been to so many meetings, church meetings, and so on, that we're all talking and talking and talking. And there's always the wise person that just remains silent at the very end, summarizes everything. <laughs> all of a sudden you go, why didn't you say something at the beginning? We kind got of to cut this meeting in half. Uh, and you know that. And that doesn't mean that people in the world outside of Christ don't have a type of wisdom. They do. They've learned through life and experiences and so on. But there's a certain type of eternal wisdom. There's a certain type of, of biblical wisdom It gives us an understanding of what life looks like from a biblical perspective, from a biblical perspective. There is something else, just the sheer observation, the sheer observation of what is taking place in life that tells us about this message of wisdom. 5,000 years of recorded human history, and we're no better off than where we were 5,000 years ago. Better technology, better this, better that. But there's no real change. There's still wars and rumors of wars. There's still trouble in, in all types of places. Because the human heart, it's not a genetic issue. You can't fix it. You can't go in there and change the genetic structure. It's a soulish thing. It's an eternal thing. And so trying to fix the human heart Without the wisdom of the gospel, wisdom, knowledge without wisdom is a blank check. You can't cash it. It doesn't do anything. That's why you and I are able to look at life through the lens of this book and see what is going on. I've often told our people, and I will tell you, might offend you a little bit, no cards and letters, thank you. According to Scripture, we're the problem, people. We're the problem. And when the problem tries to solve the problem, that's a problem. And that's why you see the mess, the Democrats, the Republicans, everybody yelling at one another, all all over the place. There's no wisdom. People just bring information and knowledge and data to the the table, but they they don't bring wisdom to the table. And when wisdom comes to the table, people listen because they know deep down it's true. Almost every single commencement exercise, college, high school, graduation, whatever it happens to be, almost all of them, the message is the same. And it's either given by a politician, an athlete, or a movie star. That's who you invite in. I'm not here to say anything negative about any one of them. I'm just here to say, and here's how the message goes. You're the generation that's going to change the world. What the mind can conceive, you can achieve. They graduate and can't change a diaper. So much as a car tire. Why? Because that's not going to change the world. You can't change the world by knowledge. You can't change the world by gray matter. The world will be changed by wisdom, the wisdom of the gospel, the wisdom of, 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 of Christ's truth that are borne out in these particular sections here. So as we continue to look at this, you will see that Jesus calls Levi. Look at, look at, look at this, verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the, the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, this is Matthew, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. Levi got up and followed him. How do you tell somebody to just follow you? What was it in Jesus' life? What was it that Levi could see? Why did others drop their nets and follow him? Are we following him? What does it mean to follow him? There was a little bracelet that came out a number of years ago, at WWJD, and used to say, what would Jesus do? And I think sometimes when we look at that, we'll say, well, if I'm going to follow him, I need to do what Jesus would do. Can you heal a paralytic? Can you calm a storm? I can't. So we get in trouble I'm not down on the bracelets, it's kind of cute, but I think it ought to say this. What does Jesus think of what I'm doing? Because I can't do what Jesus did, but what does Jesus think of what I'm doing? Am I following him with the wisdom that he has given me in his word? Now, right now, we are using technology. There's cameras and lights and stuff everywhere, and it's being used in a wise way, all right? But when you think of technology and you think of all that, is, that, that it can be used for, you know, it can be used for good and it can be used for things that are not so good. So when I think of technology, there's the knowledge, it's not called tech-wisdomry, it's called technology. I can't help but to think of, of this as sort of a little bit of an, of an example. Try to imagine a man goes down to catch a stagecoach a couple hundred years ago and he just misses it, and he says to the ticket agent, when's the next one? The guy says, uh, two weeks. He goes, two weeks? He goes, blistering mad and storms home. But thank goodness for technology. His son goes down to catch a train, and he just misses it. When's the next one? Two days. Two days? you got to be kidding me. Storms off. But thank goodness for technology. His son, son goes down to catch a plane. He just misses it. When's the next one? Two hours. Two hours, man, i got to be in L.A. Storms off to the Starbucks, puts his noise, Bose-canceling headset on there, and and plugs into his computer and sips his coffee latte, seething the entire time while he's watching a movie. But thank goodness for technology. His son works out of his house, just rolls out of bed, turns on his computer, approximately two minutes for download. What? Wants to put his fist through the screen. From two weeks to two days to two hours to two minutes, technology changed, but not the human heart. Jeff and I have been going to the Amazon for quite a few years together. There's something else I know about all people, and that is Proverbs says, the eyes of a man are never satisfied. And I can remember so many times seeing these little huts and the poverty, and every time I come back, I say the same thing to myself. I will never, ever complain again. I get home and open up the refrigerator. We're out of half and half? There's no butter? It's the human heart. And I can't just go in there and fix it and just get rid of this thing. It's there. It's, it's there. Let me read something to you. It was written a number of years ago, back in the 70s, I think. There was a man by the name of Uthant. He was the Secretary General of the United Nations. Brilliant guy. He was a Buddhist. Buddhists are, generally speaking, atheistic. And he addressed uh, 67 different scholars and, and 2,500 people from different nations all around the world. And this is what he asked. He asked this question. Listen very carefully to this question. What element is lacking so that with all our skill and all our knowledge, we still find ourselves in the dark valley of discord and enmity? Sometime you may want to look up Genesis 3.15. It talks about discord and enmity. What is it that inhibits us from moving forward together to enjoy the fruits of human endeavor and to reap the harvest of human experience? Why is it that, for all of our professed ideals, our hopes, and our skills, peace on earth is still a distant objective seen only dimly through the storms and turmoils of this present life? Mr. Secretary, Mr. Secretary, I I can answer that. This is humanism. You keep talking about our knowledge, our professed ideals, our skills, our this, our that, and then you're asking the ultimate question with all of that, why isn't there peace on earth? It's called sin. It's called us. It's called no wisdom. You left wisdom isn't mentioned in here. This is This is a modern version of the Tower of Babel. Let us build us a tower to heaven. Let us do this. Let us do that. Where's Jesus? Where's the gospel? Where's God? Where's wisdom? There's a man in the 1700s. I think he was a pastor. I'm not sure. But he made this statement. He said, give me a candle and my Bible. Lock me in a dungeon, and I will tell you what the world is doing. If we resurrected him right now, he'd look around and go, I told you so. I told you things weren't going to get a whole lot better. And this shouldn't be a downer of a message because this is not our ultimate home. This place is always going to be a mess, which is why the gospel has to go out, which is why Rolling Hills Community Church needs to be a hospital, a spiritual hospital where people can come in here and feel safe with all of their junk. I've got just as much junk as anybody that walks in this door. There's nothing special about me, nothing special about my heart. I'm a sinner, saved by God's grace. So when I look at these things, I think the gospel is best communicated when the conviction of those who believe it can be observed by those who don't, all right? When I'm thinking of Jesus here, and I'm thinking of all these people that are crowding around, they want to get in, they want to see him, they want to talk to him, they want to be healed, they want to get more wisdom, he's not the only one. If you were to go back in the Old Testament, And you find that Joseph gets out of prison because he interpreted some dreams. And Pharaoh says, Oh, there's a man in prison that can interpret dreams. Bring me that man. And he interprets Pharaoh's dream. You know what Pharaoh says? This is a wise man. I think we'll put him in charge. Wisdom was the authority. Daniel is a teenager. In Babylon, in captivity, do you know what the prince of the guard said about Daniel? This is a man of wisdom. Nebuchadnezzar recognized he was a man of wisdom, and he was exalted. Jesus was lowly. He arrives on the scene, and all of a sudden people are saying, come and see a man that told me all things I've ever done. Do you know people actually should be saying that about us? Come see this woman. Come see this man. He he just seems to know an awful lot. There's some something there. I've been around people that have so much wisdom, I just want to sit at their feet and talk for hours because of just who they are. There are people that are watching our lives that are not believers. And our lives should be so above reproach that they ought to be saying this to themselves. I don't ever plan on being a Christian, but if I do, I want to be like you. I don't ever plan on darkening the doors of a church, but if I do, I want to go to Rolling Hills, where people are living out this life, a life that's very convicting, a life that is very, very real. Paul said, be followers of me even as I am of Christ. Follow me, Jesus says to Levi, and he follows him. Jesus, it's very interesting, Jesus, to the best of my knowledge, hardly ever answers any question, only a few. Many, many questions were asked of Jesus, and there were usually people trying to put him down. You'll see a number of places in Luke 20 where they'll come to him with a, trying to trap him and, and trying to get him cornered and so on. You don't want to mess with Jesus, because he's going to come back with a parable that's going to put you in your place. It was a young ruler, Matthew 19, Good master, what must I do to have eternal life? Why do you call me good? There's none good but one, God. It's either Jesus wasn't good or he's God. Luke 10, just before the parable of the good Samaritan, a religious leader comes to Jesus and asks the same question. What must I do to have eternal life? And then it says, because he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to mess with Jesus. And then Jesus tells this incredible account. But then there's the woman at the well that says, <laughs> give me this water. I want this water you're talking about. Come and see a man that told me all things I've ever done. Or the Philippian jailer that says to the Apostle Paul, what must I do to be saved? There was no parable there. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Let's take a look at this. Move a little bit further down. Look at verses 15 and following. We read this While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Literally, sinners to repentance. Hmm. Can we do that? Can we call people and say, I I want you to come and meet my Jesus? We can do a lot of things that Jesus did here. We can preach. We can say somebody's sins are forgiven. We know what people are thinking. We can say, follow me as I am following Christ. We can say, he didn't come to save righteous people. And the problem is, built within the human makeup is, we think we're naturally really good people. And in some respects, in comparison with other people, we are. But Scripture says, ah, We've got shame and guilt and anger and bitterness and lust and greed and everything else that's going on in our hearts, and we can't fix it. And so the good news of the gospel comes along and deals with that, and we can share that. We have the same gospel, we have the same opportunity that that Jesus presents. And so when I look at this, I'm thinking... You could look at this message and say, boy, it's kind of a downer to think that we're never going to fix this world. Let me remind you that in the book of Hebrews, the 11th chapter, it's the great chapter on faith. And the beauty of that chapter is this. Somewhere around verse 13, it says something like this, after it's listed all these different Great people of faith. Abraham was looking for a city that has foundation, whose builder and maker is God. Then it goes on and it says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded that they were strangers and sojourners and pilgrims in this world. Our hope is not in this world. God's coming back to redeem this world. We will live in this world, on this planet, this very planet. But there won't be any more sin. There won't be any more disease. There won't be any more turmoil. God will fix it. Probably not the best word. He'll redeem it. He'll purchase it out from under the slave market of all of its knowledge and its professed ideals. And he'll answer Uthant's question. Why? Why can't we get this thing right? We're speaking about wisdom and the difference between that and knowledge. Accumulation of information, proper application. Of all that information all right but as you get to the New Testament the Apostle Paul is the one that really dives in deeply in explaining the human condition and the human heart and Paul says in 2nd Timothy the scriptures were written to make you wise unto salvation." There's the ultimate wisdom. Are you wise unto salvation? Do you know that you have eternal life? These things have I written unto you, that you might know that you have eternal life, First John tells us. Do you know that you have eternal life? Do you that are watching online know you have eternal life? Well, I, I, I'm pretty sure. He that believeth in me has everlasting life. It doesn't say he that believeth in me is pretty sure he has everlasting life. Do you have everlasting life? Well, oh, I think so. Let's go over it again. He that believeth in me thinks that he has... No. Do you have everlasting life? Well, I'm a good person. Let's go over it again. He that believeth in me has everlasting life because there's none good, no, not one, none. Not me, not you, not Mother Teresa, not the Pope, not Billy Graham, none, all on the same boat. And Paul goes out of his way to say what salvation is and what it isn't. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. But to him who worketh not, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Not by mercies that we have done, but not, not by good works as we have done, but according to his mercy he has saved us. It's hard to break that barrier of thinking that, that I deserve it. And it's, it's also so painful to go to bed every night with eternity in your heart all throughout life. It's there. And it's, it's, it's like a rock in the shoe, and it's, it's, how can I get this thing out of my shoe? By believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. By that I mean that you realize that he died, that he paid the penalty of your sin, that he rose again, that he offers eternal life to anyone who will believe. And believing is recognizing the fact that he kept salvation, he kept the law for you, he earned your salvation. He kept the law perfectly because the law demands that we keep it perfectly. We offend in any one point, and we can't possibly enter into his kingdom. He keeps it perfectly and then places to our account that perfection, that righteousness, when we believe. Do you believe? Do you believe? Follow me. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. So let's end on a very joyful, thrilling note to know that this life is short. Eternity is long. Invest heavily in the latter. Let's pray. Should there be one, a hundred, fifty, five, ten, that have never come to the Lord Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation. Would you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ died and paid the penalty, the wages of sin, as death, and offers you eternal life as a gift? At the moment that you profess Christ, that you believe that, that you repent, that you change your mind towards thinking that you can earn it and trust in him and him alone, the Bible says you'll pass from death unto life. You'll be taken out of the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of God's dear Son. Get it settled today. Now, Father, I pray that you would dismiss us with your grace. Give us a day to honor and glorify you. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for checking out our Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this sermon, make sure to share it with loved ones and subscribe so you can tune in each time we release a new sermon. Don't forget to check out our other awesome content like the Making History Parenting podcast, Men's Leadership Network, and the RH Women's As You Go podcast. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, go ahead and download our app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. We'll see you next time.